Dennis Sarfate making his first appearance. What will you do to defend the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Welcome to the Green Dragon Tavern, where we talk a little treason. I'm Zach Lautenschlager, and filling in today for Dennis Sarfate, who is still in Japan, is Sentinel editor Ben Zeisloft. Great to be here. I'm glad you're here, Ben. Uh, monologuing isn't much fun, so <laughs> it's, it's good to have your perspective. I always really enjoy it. This week, the United Nations is meeting in Geneva uh, over the Small Arms Treaty. This is something that's been going on for several decades. Uh, in fact, uh, they started talking about doing this early in my uh, career in gun rights, which started 25 years ago. Um, they finally got President Obama to sign the Small Arms Treaty, or the UN Gun Ban, which is a more accurate description. He dumped it on the Senate in 2016, just as he uh, walked out of the White House. And uh, after some lobbying, President Obama actually rescinded, uh, excuse me, President Trump actually rescinded Obama's signature, which uh, was awesome to see. This is a, a fight that I have worked on for many years. Uh, we actually went down to the UN in New York quite frequently, um, and it's fascinating to see just how relentless these guys are, even though... Uh, the U.S. is no longer a signatory. They continue pushing it and acting as if the U.S. is part of this and should uh, should join again. Yeah, so the party nations are meeting this week in Geneva, Switzerland, to discuss uh, guidances for business and international arms trade. That's, that's what most of the treaty is about, is international arms trade and, and how uh, guns move between countries, essentially. But as you're saying, Zach, the concern is that uh, this treaty also mandates member nations to make registries of their own people who own certain firearms and transfer that actually in between different foreign governments. So that's the main concern, of course, from gun rights. Uh, I think the concern among the conservative movement in the United States is this epitomizes the skepticism toward the United Nations where, you know, we don't have a one world government. We're not supposed to have a one world government. Each each nation is supposed to govern as they see fit and, and look up for their own nation. So I think that's some of the criticism that's coming towards efforts like this and others from the U.N., yeah, that's right. And, and it's important to note that there is both. Um, gun rights activists focus on the, um, the internal policy aspect of the UN gun ban, and it is there. We shouldn't do that to the uh, exclusion of the international regulations that they're pursuing. Um, the State Department under Obama actually did things like try to keep um, a bunch of M1 Garands. There were several million M1 Garands that we had lent to um, I believe most of them were still in South Korea during the Korean War. Well, now those are all collector's items, and there are millions of gun owners and collectors in the U.S. who would love to own a Garand that went through World War II and then went through Korea and was in, was in Korea, and then we got them back. Well, they destroyed millions of them under the U.N. Uh, small arms treaty under the guise of international uh, arms uh, trade. Um, but the so so that does exist, and obviously there are some good reasons for nations to sign treaties. We don't need the UN to do that. Um, globalism is bad, no matter how you view it, from my perspective, and it's it, it certainly is not a something we want to to encourage. Um, but the main concern in the United States is exactly what you mentioned, and it's something that the media and the UN wants to gloss over. The treaty does require member nations to register domestic firearms. It does require member nations to turn over those registries to a central authority, and so that gets shared with whoever, Red China, Tin Pot Dictators, everybody gets to see what the U.S. turns over, 
um, as far as internal registration. Now, thankfully, that never did happen, although you can look at it and go, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the ATF is actually keeping the yellow form, the 4473. They always said, well, we're destroying that. And then it comes out that, yeah, they also say they're destroying or not looking through phone records, and they are. They're snooping through your phone records. So anytime you allow government to gather information, what they say they do with that information is not trustworthy. And so pretending that the UN, oh, of course, they have no nefarious ends. There would, there would be no, no uh, bad things that the UN is going to do with a national registry. Of course there is. Of course they're going to do bad things. It yeah, is that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the issue is as well, you know, you may say this, this is never going to pass the Senate. Of course, the Senate has to ratify treaties under our constitutional system. I believe it's a 60 vote threshold, if I'm not mistaken, you that are a two thirds majority. I can't remember at the moment, but the fact this is being pushed that Obama uses as a last last ditch effort, as our staff reporter pointed out, uh, to pass gun control as he was leaving office is certainly a concern. It shows where the Democrats and the left want to push the United States in respect to, to gun ownership. Uh, they don't see it as a as an inalienable human right. They see it as uh, something that the state can take and give as as they will. And I think that's exactly contrary to the American tradition. It is a two-thirds vote in the Senate. That's right. And yes, thankfully, um, they were never able to push that through. There was always a little bit of a concern that they could because there are always enough limp-wristed Republicans who will join the Democrats to do that sort of thing. Um, and so it was a very good thing for President Trump to rescind the signatures, uh, the U.S.'s signature, um, and to uh, make it necessary to start over again. I'm fascinated that, uh, that uh, Obama light, I mean Biden, hasn't actually gone back <laughs> and uh, redone it again. I think that the perception, they looked at that and they said, no, U.S. gun owners were just too mobilized against the U.N. gun ban. If we sign the treaty again, it's just going to make gun rights organizations stronger, and they're right, it will. Um, gun owners like to fight for their gun rights. Um, they are very willing to do so. And that's something that I really appreciate about the gun owning community in the U.S. Right. I think it's worth noting as well, uh, after 2020, at least from what I've seen, the, the perception around gun ownership has, has increased, right? Because in 2020, the, the nation was marked by violent riots and even people coming from urban areas to suburban areas. And there are lots of news stories about you know, all the neighbors getting together with their, their rifles and their shotguns and making barricades in front of their streets and turning away these violent thugs who wanted to destroy their property. And, you know, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do with their guns, which is protect um, their God-given property, right? God in his providence has given them houses and families to protect. And it's a it's inherent to your right to life to protect that with weapons if need be. Uh, so gun ownership has increased even more so since 2020. And now they're a lot more expensive and, and so is ammo. But, um, you, you know, even, even with Obama entering office, people noted his gun policies and bought more guns. But I think that's really accelerated in the past couple of years alone. And so I think you're right in your assessment that Biden knows better than to try to get behind this in any way. It's an observable phenomenon um, that people, once placed in a situation where they need it, become pro-gun. Um, we can go back to, you know, before the rioting in 2020, the, one of the most notable events was the 1992 LA riots. Um, and I was, let's see, 13. Uh, when that happened. So I do remember it. Uh, I do remember some of it. Um, but as a child, looking back at it, uh, but I did see it at the time. You saw especially Korean shop owners who lived in L.A. Um, they faced um, some pretty serious uh, violence. Their shops were being burnt down. They were being beat in the st beaten in the streets. 
And they went and armed themselves in California, in L.A., and stood on their roofs with their hunting rifles and shotguns and said, please leave us alone. And if you don't, we will respond. Um, at that time in L.A., they had every right to do so. I don't believe you could legally do that in L.A. now. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure the police would, would arrest you for, for uh, disturbing the peace, even if they didn't have anything more specific. But I think their, L.A. actually has, the city of L.A. actually has more restrictions. Um, but because of that, the violence specifically focused against Koreans stopped. Um, that's the way it works. Um, and so you see an increasing number of people who do not identify as conservative wanting to be able to carry a firearm for self-defense. Um, you also, unfortunately, see some wanting to be able to carry firearms for the purpose of uh, you know, violent protests or, or at least um, do protesting while carrying a gun, right? And that's right. also not unique to the left. Uh, I, I've seen many conservatives try to do the same. I think it has its problems. And so the importance of governing ourselves and recognizing that the right to keep bare arms is an extension of the right to self-defense. It is the right to life, not the right to protest, certainly not the right to um, threaten, even, even obliquely, violence for our political perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good connection with the Los Angeles uh, phenomenon. Uh, there, there have been several videos and, and stories circulating in, in recent months about uh, shop owners in, in major cities like Los Angeles defending their stores against people who are coming in to, to loot them. And, you know, uh, there is a two-tier justice system in, in these cities because usually it's the store owners who defend themselves, uh, whether it's just pushing them out of the doors or, or, or there's one instance where a man from, I believe it's somewhere in South Asia, took a massive stick and just started beating the guy who was emptying the shelves into a giant trash bucket, that guy got charged, or at least it was floated that that guy was going to get charged. Um, so unfortunately, these major cities are are not upholding the rule of law. They're actually on the side of the criminals. They don't want to cross, prosecute the criminals. They want to prosecute the business owners who are protecting their, their stuff using their Second Amendment rights or even just their natural right to self-defense in, in a proper way. And I think that two-tier justice system is extending to the United Nations, where they care a lot about what little people like us do with our guns and not so much about what giant governments are doing, transferring arms to one another and, and funding wars and so forth. Well, it becomes laughable when China is given major roles in major committees, uh, pretending to bring uh, safety and security to the world, and even um, overseeing or pretending to oversee um, atrocities. And yet China to this day is mistreating its own people wherever it pleases, un secretly behind an iron curtain. Um, and now China gets to stand there and say the U.S. should sign the U.N. gun ban. The U.S. should sign the Small Arms Trade Treaty because, you know, we owe it to the world. The U.S. owes it to the world to, to bring that kind of safety. Um, yeah, that's, that's laughable. You make an excellent point, Ben. <laughs> so um, joining us today is Lizzie Marbach. Um, she's uh, joining right now. We'll give her just a minute. But uh, Ben, would you introduce Lizzie? Absolutely. Lizzie is the former communications director for Ohio Right to Life, so one of the main uh, pro-life groups out in the state of Ohio. Um, and last week she went viral on social media because she had a gospel presentation, very simple, tweetable one. It just said uh, something to the effect of there's no hope for any of us except for in Jesus Christ alone. And a Republican congressman named Max Miller uh, from the state of Ohio as well uh, re responded to that and told her to delete it and asserted that it violated his uh, religious freedom because he happens to be Jewish. And, and um, Lizzie had a great response. She, she said, no, uh, John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And eventually, Max Miller apologized. 
Uh, and then two days later, Lizzie found herself fired from a higher right to life. And it turns out that instance was one of several that had to do with social media use. Uh, Lizzie prefers a more uh, direct tone of engagement on the issue of abortion and, and other issues like that. Um, there was one instance where I think it was uh, just a few days before that Max Miller incident where she called um, uh, she called a pro-abortion ad advocate a murderous liar because, of course, she was advocating for murder and she was lying. And that got her in some hot water at work. Uh, but I'll let Lizzie tell the rest since she's joining us now. Hey, Lizzie, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And Ben, you pretty much laid out all of the major details in this. Uh, but really, the story began pretty soon after I started with Ohio Right to Life. When I started with Ohio Right to Life, I let them know my communication strategy that I think that we should use more uh, bold tones, that we shouldn't use effeminate soft tones anymore, especially for the time that we're in. Um, I started right before the uh, Dobbs leak came out, and so we knew that it was game time. We knew that now was the time to actually act. I mean, really, we should have been acting before that uh, even happened. But either way, Roe was going to be overturned. Our excuse to not uh, end abortion was going to be over. And now we, we had every opportunity in the world to protect the preborn. So why wouldn't we speak clearly on that? And I let them know that that was my strategy. And in the beginning, they said that that was more than welcome. And then as I actually began to implement that strategy, they were not very happy about it. And I think that they got very uncomfortable because it did upset the the people that were in the party. They, it, it upset the politicians because they could no longer hide behind uh, our previous milk toast messaging. They had to also protect life in their messaging when we're doing the same. And so I think that it kind of put a threat to the whole system uh, when you think about it. And so they pushed back and against my messaging, uh, like using terms like abortion is murder. I thought that that was just kind of a given. Um, we see even organizations like Live Action or Students for Life or, or other popular um, pro-life organizations that even use that kind of messaging without any problems. So uh, I didn't think that that would be an issue, but it, it was. Um, and then on my personal Twitter account, I, I find it important to, to speak the truth, especially in politics. I think that it's important for Christians to engage in politics and uh, call out the evil that's happening. And so I would make a habit of, you know, speaking out if I saw a politician act unjustly, or if I saw a pro-abortion advocate lying about uh, her advocating for murder. And so I called her a murderous liar. Uh, like you said, it was about two weeks ago now when I when I said that, and that just really became a sticking point uh, between my boss and I that he just wasn't willing to compromise on, on that, and I wasn't willing to compromise on that either. I think that that's, that's a line in the sand that I just have to draw. If we can't say the truth about what's really at stake here, then what's the point at all of, of speaking? And so at that point was when we began to discuss uh, our mutual um, departure, that, that we might mutually decide to part ways. Um, that was on Monday, and Tuesday evening is when the Max Miller incident happened. And then two days later is when my boss called me and he cited the Miller uh, exchange as a distraction and that my social media use as a whole had just become um, too much in the face of November's ballot initiative and that we had to, uh, that he had to let me go immediately. You know, I really appreciate your perspective, Lizzie. It is, um, 
important to recognize that even before Roe, as you pointed out, um, it was time for the state legislatures to act, and that across the country, um, the, no state legislator gets to say, well, the Supreme Court has said uh, that murder is legal, and so we just, there's just nothing we can do. Um, that simply is not, that was, was not correct then. But at least we could talk about it, right? There was a debate. After Roe, what's left? What's left other than criminalizing uh, the act of killing a child and recognizing that this is, this is, this is all there is? Um, and so your, your tone and the way you have approached it, um, now I, I don't live in Ohio, I do have many friends there uh, in the legislature, um, so, but I wasn't familiar with, uh, with what you were doing until um, you were fired. <laughs> so, uh, but then I went back and I went back and looked at uh, how you were messaging and the things that you were doing from within your, uh, within your job at Ohio, Ohio Right to Life and came away really appreciating your perspective. So um, thank you for, uh, for carrying that forward. I'm really excited about the national attention um, that Ohio Right to Life brought to your messaging by firing you. And I'm not saying I'm happy you were fired, but I think that is a definite uh, upside for the cause. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And, and thank you for your kind words for my messaging. It's definitely not easy to, you know, speak boldly, especially when your superiors are telling you not to and major political figures are telling you not to and all eyes are kind of on your social media it was a lot of pressure but obviously you know god puts a boldness within us when once we become saved and a part of his kingdom he he gives us a, the boldness that's necessary to you know spread the gospel and and also fight for uh his just laws and and so i'm i'm thankful for for uh god for that for enabling me to do that but like you said i think that this is such important attention um to to bring forth in the conversation because for so long a lot of pro-life organizations have kind of been viewed as these um you know just just overall great organizations that really have a heart for the pre-born that are doing all that they possibly can do to save life and they're viewed very innocently kind of compartmentalized from the rest of the political world they're they're not viewed as the the other the bad politicians um but there is a lot of the nasty politics within the pro-life movement just as there is in the entire political movement and the pro-life movement definitely has lost its way whether whether it was genuine in, in the beginning uh, and lost its way or if it's always kind of been infiltrated with these people who seek political influence I'm not completely sure but either way Ohio Right to Life and, and the pro-life movement as a whole as stands today uh, the leaders that are most influential absolutely have given into compromise after compromise and it's put pre-born lives at stake uh, thousands of lives are dying as we speak because of the cowardice that our pro-life leaders are, are showing every single day. And the truth of it really is that the pro-life leaders and the pro-life organizations have, haven't become organizations to advocate for the pre-born, but they've become uh, organizations to give cover for pro-life, supposed pro-life politicians to get elected under the pro-life name. We saw that happen just last night in the presidential debates. Uh, not a single candidate was able to stand strong and say abortion is wrong, abortion is murder, and every life from the beginning of conception should be protected. Uh, it, the, the one candidate who I thought that might stand strong on that was Mike Pence. Uh, I, he's, he's not exactly my, my favorite pick for the presidential <laughs> pick, but I 
know that that's his one issue that he typically right. stands strong on. And he couldn't even do that. Uh, and it's because the pro-life organizations have given them all cover to be able to say these crazy things like, let's let's find compromise on this issue as though there's compromise between murdering someone and not murdering someone. It's kind of black and white. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. The you know I, Every time Mike Pence opened his, his mouth, all I can think of was, well, that's no longer my concern or that's not my concern. But... <laughs> Unfortunately, you can kind of see it going through the back of his head on all of this. He acts like, well, it doesn't really matter. This isn't a, a, a real issue. There aren't actually people dying. I'm actually running for president, but that's what's actually going on. You lay your finger on something that is absolutely true and has, to some degree, always been true in, a, in any kind of representative politics. It's certainly been true in the U.S. Um, since the founding. Politicians are constantly trying to get away with things. That's why the Founding Fathers uh, enacted the Constitution the way they did. It's to give the people the ability to control their elected representatives. Um, it was Jefferson who said, speak no more of confidence in man, but bind him down with the chains of the Constitution. There, he, he, that's pretty strong language. And he's talking about politicians trying to get away with things. Now, the sad reality is that when, once we have... Uh, groups that that rise up to do that, they often become co-opted into, rather than delivering the message of the people to the politicians and telling them, this is what our grassroots, this is what our advocacy, what our constituents want, and these are your constituents and you'll do it or we will deliver uh, a message during, in, in the next election. That's basic American politics. It becomes increasingly easy once the leadership of that kind of grassroots lobbying becomes friends with and their their futures become tied to the poli the politicians and their interests they turn right around and begin representing the politicians back to the grassroots it's exactly what many self-confessed what i call fake pro-life leaders are doing they're not actually pro-life they are pro-politician they're they're pro their relationship with the politicians um, it's something that you have seen firsthand, and it's something that happens in many other um, fields as well. I grew up, I came up in gun rights politics. Well, the NRA is to gun rights what national right to life is to the fight to end abortion. They do exactly the same thing. They become friends with the politicians, and they're what we used to call and still do call access-based. They have to have access. And when the politicians say, if you don't rein in your people, I won't talk to you, that's a very serious threat to them because they perceive their ability to change politics as solely reliant on their ability to talk to the politicians. Well, there is another way to do this, and that's how constitutional carry has become law in 27 states now. Um, obviously, that's another issue. We were just talking about, uh, before you came on, the fact that uh, the right to keep and bear arms flows from the right to life, that it is actually part of the right to self-defense. Um, but the right to life fight itself we, you see a growing number of people, and you mentioned live action, you mentioned Students for Life. Um, I, I have enjoyed watching live action uh, come up very quickly, and actually have a few friends that work over there. Um, at Students for Life, I have a lot of friends who run uh, most of their political stuff. Um, I don't know if you've met any of them, but they are bringing a new perspective. Now, it's not one that I always agree with. There's still a lot of, uh, of willingness to compromise in some places that I don't think we should be compromising, but I really appreciate the perspective that, that uh, Live Action and Students for Life are bringing. And I think that 
the you see God raising up a new generation of people who are willing to fight to end abortion and actually recognize what's going on and not cower behind, oh, well, there are two victims, or cower behind, well, we can't call it murder, because there are people in the room right now who had, a, had an abortion. Um, that kind of horrible thinking, it, it, is, it is a disservice to the people who have had abortions and repented. If it wasn't murder, then, then who cares? Why, why does it matter that they have turned around and said, yeah, that was wrong? Absolutely, yeah. And I think we, so we also covered this week how Ohio Right to Life and Center for Christian Virtue, which are two uh, major pro-life groups out in Ohio, are actually working behind the scenes, like you're saying, to kill these bills of equal protection that would just basically say, well, born people are human beings, pre-born people are human beings, so let's protect them with the exact same laws against murder. If, if, you, if you kill somebody, you should be prosecuted for it. Like, um, like you're saying, there's the second victim narrative saying, uh, well, it's not, it's not pro-woman to say that you know a mother who knowingly and willfully and maliciously uh, kills a baby should should be prosecuted. Uh, it's people don't want to talk about how it's actually not pro little women because there's you know half of the babies who are aborted are, are preborn females, right? Uh, so we covered this and we actually obtained audio of uh, um, a state legislator admitting to the the head of End Abortion Ohio uh, that Center for Christian Virtue told him not to support this bill. Our thing more more specifically was to not propose it until after the November election. There's a ballot referendum about abortion rights in Ohio. Um, and I think it gets, that gets back to what both of you are saying, where it's this backroom politic situation, where instead of just doing the right thing, you know, it's, it's never the right time. It's always the next election. You know, after this, it'll be, well, what about the, the primaries? What about 2024? What about 2026? It's never ending game. And that's how we've gotten to the point where it's 50 years. And, over, and Roe has even been overturned at this point. That was the, the goal of the pro-life movement for so long. And still, abortion is functionally legal in every single state. Um, I talk to my friends in the conservative media about this all the time, how there are articles that say, well, you know, 13 states have banned abortion. That's not true because it is completely legal to uh, order abortion pills to maybe maybe surgical abortion is not legal, but uh, other forms of abortion are. We've actually covered the Sentinel as well, how in the state of Texas, uh, there are nonprofits running, uh, they call them pop-up abortion stores, where they're telling women, you know, come here, we'll tell you how to order these pills covertly from overseas or uh, whatever the case may be. And, and we attain permits that they got from state and local governments. Uh, saying you can do this. So that's not called, you know, ending abortion or abolishing abortion. That's just saying you need to murder your baby a different way now. And I think Lizzie's situation is helping to expose that. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, these two organizations in Ohio uh, from the beginning have been lobbying against this bill coming out. And their reasoning is that it's not wise or strategic with the November ballot initiative uh, happening this November. They think that if we uh, bring forth a pro-life bill that would actually protect life, that would actually end all abortion in our state, that that would basically ensure that the abortion side would win this November on the um, and, and enshrine abortion into our constitution. But the problem with that is we can think about, you know, political strategy and try to be smart and try to be wise in what we're doing, but that should never uh, cross over into the line of where we're willing to compromise and sin and, and, and basically say that tens of thousands of innocent lives are acceptable collateral damage that we're willing to 
to deal with uh, in a campaign by by them pausing all pro-life legislation this year, which is what they did uh, in January when they found out that the abortion lobby was in fact going to bring forth a constitutional amendment this November, they made the decision to pause all pro-life legislation, even, uh, even legislation that would still give immunity to the mother. They said, no, we're not going to do anything. We don't want the abortion discussion to be brought up at all this year because we can't win if it gets brought up. And what that is saying is that every baby that's conceived in 2023 is not worth protecting and that they can die. We'll worry about protecting the babies after November. And that is wrong. That's unjust. And that's not pro-life. That That is just being politically uh, motivated, worrying about your own influence, and being cowardly. To be frank, it's, it's pure cowardice. If you really believe that lives are dying every single day, why wouldn't you risk it all to protect them? Uh, and so, when I found out that Ohio Right to Life specifically was lobbying against the bill, I, I spoke up and I, I went to my superiors and I said, this is wrong. Uh, that was another conversation that we had when I, we first started is I, I told my superiors that, hey, I am for the full abolition of abortion. I am for uh, full equal protection. I'm not for uh, these immunity clauses that take away equal protection for the preborn. I think that if we say that the preborn are human lives, that they should have the same equal protection that born human lives have. And they, they knew that from the beginning. And so they were trying to hide the fact that they were lobbying against this bill from me. Uh, and I made it very clear that, hey, if we come out in opposition of this, I will... I, I will speak out against Ohio Right to Life on that. And so I definitely think that that was a contributing factor to my leaving as well, um, is the fact that they knew that as soon as this went public that I would I would speak out and that I would support the bill and I would make it known that someone at Ohio Right to Life stands behind this. Uh, and I think that, they, that, that made them extremely nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is, it is so much fun to peek behind the curtain at organizations like Ohio Right to Life, for me personally, because um, politics, it, it's all the same. You can, you can look at any issue. Let's take a look at what we used to call the Chambers of Compromise, or the Chambers <laughs> of Commerce, um, who claim to be a pro-business lobby. Uh, when you look at what they're actually doing, most of the time they're trying to shelve uh, pro-business legislation. They're trying to put it in a closet, not this year, this is not the time. The arguments are all the same. And you can pick an issue, and in fact, the left does it as well. There's a reason why, like, for example, Greenpeace and other climate change activists were upset with Obama when he was president. Some of them actually climbed Mount Rushmore and unfurled a banner demanding more action on climate change, specifically targeted at Obama because they didn't like the fact that their their lobbyists and their politicians were colluding to do less, not more. Um, this is how it works unless the grassroots is actually willing to speak up. Um, you, have, you have to hold your lobbyists accountable. You can't get rid of them, unfortunately, because they, can, they figure out how to fund themselves and make themselves necessary <laughs> in, a, in a system. And to be honest, um, the reason they can do that is because we have a, a system that protects free speech. But that means it's necessary for the people who are represented by uh, the organizations 
to actually hold their organizations accountable, stop funding them, fund other organizations, expose what's going on sometimes, um, and catch the lobbyists with their hands in the cookie jar. Um, that's that's part of the picture. And uh, Lizzie, I really I really appreciate your role in doing that, and have enjoyed uh, have enjoyed watching that. It's super fun. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And like you said, yeah, these lobbyists are the ones who really need to be called out, especially when they have their hands in the cookie jar. Um, it, oh, here at Ohio Right to Life, I, I guess I'll just say it. Uh, Mike Gonadakis, our president, he is the lobbyist. And he is the one who for decades has really put a, a barrier up between the protection of the pre-born. There was a decades-long fight over the heartbeat bill where Mike Anadakis was lobbying against it, and he wasn't lobbying against it because he thought that it wasn't strong enough. He was lobbying against it because it, uh, he said that it was too far too soon and not the right time. And uh, he was the one who made the call to pause all pro-life legislation this year as well. Uh, it's a when you really dig into it, these lobbyists are really just lobbyists for the politicians to the grassroots, like you said. They're not lobbying from the grassroots to the politicians, letting them know what the people actually want. They're just going back to the people, telling them, calm down, calm down, here's the plan, here's here's uh, what the politicians are saying. They really love us. They they want to do this. They want to protect life. This is just a, the situation. And they just completely flipped everything on its head. For several decades, two decades now, I have participated in training grassroots activists on how to respond to their politicians. And it's it remains very fun to me. Now, I haven't done as much in the last year as if we've been focused on the Sentinel. Um, I was with the, uh, the um, Foundation for Conservative, for Applied Conservative Leadership. I was on the board over there for quite a while and helped develop a lot of their curriculum. I'm with Founders Promise Foundation now. Um, and the curriculum that we developed and that others have developed as well, I'm not alone in this, certainly not taking sole credit, um, is to recognize that whenever you start a fight, you're going to get a list of objections from politicians and lobbyists, what we would call the political class. And what you went through just now, Lizzie, is exactly what they do and they have been doing for decades. Um, and they're going to continue doing it. We, I, we, I like to joke, and, and my, my old mentor in politics, we would joke, and I forget who came up with this at first, but you know there are all these political conspiracy theories, the Bohemian Grove, and et cetera, et cetera, and I always roll my eyes. But there is one conspiracy that I believe in, and we used to joke about it, calling it the Z Gnomes of Zurich. The Gnomes of Zurich show up in every state legislature, and they give all the legislators the responses to grassroots types like us. Now, it's a joke, <laughs> but we joke about it because it happens again and again and again. We could be talking about Indiana, we could be talking about Idaho, we could be talking about Florida, West Virginia, South Dakota. You you, you name the state. There are probably 10 states in, in America where everything is so left-leaning that the dynamic is different. You can go to Massachusetts and California, and this is happening, but it's on the left. They're, the left is doing this to their people, but everywhere else, you're gonna see this dynamic on the right. You're gonna see conservatives being sold the exact bill of goods that you just outlined from one lobbyist in uh, in Ohio, and it's it's one of the biggest dirty secrets of American politics that that people we give our money to an organization that has great messaging, right? That has a good reputation, and we expect them to carry to to keep their word. And the reality is, 
they don't. It doesn't matter that they're a conservative organization. They're not being honest. They're being blatantly dishonest. Yeah, I think that's one of the tragedies here as well is that there's, <clears throat> you know, millions of well-meaning Christians and conservatives across the country who are giving money to these organizations of higher rights of life and those like them, expecting them to be, well, you know, I want to end abortion, they want to end abortion, I'll give you, I'll give them my money and trust them to do just that. What really, like was he saying, they're working behind the scenes for, for decades on end to do exactly the opposite. When they have, you know, the opportunity to to pass a bill, though, it's simply just end abortion, protect preborn babies and, and recognize them as human beings, they, they emphatically do not want to do that. And I still have friends who, who support the pro-life movement and and they say, well, you know, like that can't be true. There's still lots of good pro-life organizations. I'm sure there are, but the fact remains that in these in these deep red states like Ohio, Texas, Oklahoma, um, even South Dakota, states like that, Missouri earlier this year, uh, it's always the, the pro-lifers who are the ones who are stopping these bills from being passed. Um, our friend Bradley Pierce was in Missouri earlier this year, like I said, uh, lobbying in favor of, of one of these bills to equally protect all babies. And um, there are two major pro-life groups who, are, who spoke in that committee hearing against his bill. And there was, a re there was a representative from Planned Parenthood there as well who didn't even have to speak because they knew that the pro-life groups were going to do it for them. So I think this is an underreported story, right, as a journalist this is how I'm looking at it. You know, this is a story that nobody really knows about and that, you know, we have our opinions on it, but we, we can and should uh, report at the Sentinel and, and other outlets as well, report objectively about what's going on because people don't know about it. Indeed. So, Lizzie, um, and I have actually have some some thoughts there as well, but let's uh, I wanted to ask Lizzie before uh, before you may need to go um, if you're if you're talking about what you're doing next. And if you know, if not, that's OK. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, uh, but I did want to ask and see, you know, what what does life look for you now look like for you now? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. Uh, I actually am eight months pregnant myself. And so Congrats. I'm kind of seeing that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm just taking the situation as early maternity leave. <laughs> uh, and so that's where most of my focus is, is going to be going uh, towards is just being the best wife and mother that I can be. Uh, it's our first child, so we're very, very awesome. excited about that. So we'll we'll see where where God takes me after that. But that's going to be uh, my focus going forward in the immediate future. <laughs> oh, that's super cool! And isn't God's timing great? That's that's awesome. A little yeah. extra maternity leave is is uh, is really great. My wife and I are expecting our eighth child, and uh, that's it's it's so cool. Praise God. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, cool. Well, Lizzie, uh, we're going to continue the conversation, and you are more than welcome to hang out as long as you like. We enjoy having you here, um, but when you need to go, uh, that's okay as well. So um, sometimes it's a little, a little bit of a challenge, and because we're not just a, a news outfit, we'll just, we'll just say it. So. <laughs> Um, well, I actually am meeting with my pastor, so I, I do have to get going, but I appreciate you guys having me on so much. This was uh, very fun, and I would love to come back and speak with you guys anytime that I'm welcome. Awesome. Well, we will definitely have you back. Thanks, Lizzie. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. So I think one of the things that's really important when we're talking about any political issue, and this is something that you have brought to the Sentinel um, with your work, Ben. It's something I really appreciate. And I think it's really important in this case as well, and when we're talking about what's going on inside uh, some of the pro-life lobby, is to be very specific with our language. 
And that's something that we've stri striven to do that you've done in your articles and that you're doing independently. So this is not a criticism. But in this unique situation, I think more specific language is necessary. It's not just the pro-life movement. It's not just even pro-life leaders. There are pro-life leaders who are doing the right thing. The uh, Hoosiers for Life in Indiana actually brought one of, if not the first, bill providing equal protection. Um, we're talking way back um, before, um, I would have to go back and look, but it may have been before 2012 um, that, the, that Hoosiers for Life actually brought the first bill. The bill was written by a friend of mine who <laughs> just looked at it and said, well, look, this is murder and we need to treat it that way. Um, but they would, they are self you know, they would call themselves pro-life. That's their perspective, and they're not going to hold to all of the minutia of or the details that um, that other people fighting to end abortion who would eschew the word pro-life and who would like prefer the word abolitionist or whatever would hold. But here they are, right up the middle, leading um, with proper tactics. And part of the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they were trained in how to respond to politicians when they say, if you do that again, I'm, you know, we're going to cut you off. This is why pro, some pro-life leaders get squeezed into this position, and then be, they become t wholly committed to the evil of lying about what they're actually doing. Um, but that's the unique thing that's going on. And it, it can be a challenge. It is a challenge. To, well, how do we describe this? How do we talk about it? Um, there are a couple different philosophies. And there are people like Bradley Pierce, uh, who actually, uh, Lord willing, be on next week debating or having a robust discussion with Samuel <laughs> Say over some of, of, of these, these same perspectives. So if you enjoy the discussion on, you know, what is, what is pro-life? What does it mean? Is it a relevant term today? Um, and how do we actually end abortion? Next week is going to be lit. Um, to use <laughs> to use the uh, terminology of the next generation, I'm get, still getting used to the fact that uh, that there is a next generation after me, and you guys are adults now. <laughs> but in this discussion, in this t using this terminology, um, most people who would call themselves pro-life look around and say, "Well, yes, it is murder." Most people that I know who don't interface every day with politicians, who don't have that stink on them, if you will, will say, well, yeah, it is murder. It's murder. Um, I don't know very many who won't. Um, and I think that that's, that's the challenge. There, are, there is a wide variety of people who use the term pro-life. Now, if we look at it, the word supporting life or defending life, which is what pro-life means, and we all know that's what it means, that's what we're trying to say, and we all know that's what we're trying to say, um, though that is biblical terminology. It's hard to escape the reality that supporting the right to life of every person made in God's image is not only required by God's morality, the terminology itself is given to us in that way. It is being, supporting life is biblical terminology. The problem is that the many of the political leaders, and it is true that when we show up in a state to support bills which recognize that people in the womb are people and deserve the same protection as people outside the womb, that there are people who call themselves pro-life who show up and lobby against our bills. That's, that is the uh, epitome of dishonesty. You ca we can't say, I support the right to life, but I'm not going to recognize that a tiny pre-born little girl deserves the same protection. In fact, I'm going to try to kill that legislation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm recalling uh, the, the Sunday evening service at our church this week, which happened to be on the Sixth Commandment, right? You shall not murder. 
and our pastor did a great job of showing how it, it entails both, you know, the, the negative duty, so to speak, of, of not killing another person, yes. even as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not, not hating them in your heart, not having animus toward them um, in that same root sin sort of a way, but it also has the positive duty of protecting and preserving life, even taking steps to not cause accidental death. Um, and that extends, of course, to the civil magistrates. We know as Christians um, that they're told to uphold the good and, and punish the evildoer. And that's exactly what something like an equal protection bill would do is, is simply say, well, you know, those who try to kill innocent human beings should should be punished and, and those who protect them should be recognized and rewarded. Um, and I think uh, that Lizzie was wise to mention the GOP debate, how, um, you know, just looking at how other conservatives were reacting, that was probably the biggest moment of disappointment where, you know, most conservatives I know, like you're saying, who would call themselves pro-life, do believe that abortion is murder, whether they're, um, you know, Protestant, Roman Catholic, or even I know some secular people who, who say abortion is murder and it should be banned. Um, I think everybody was universally disappointed in the in the answers from people like Mike Pence and Nikki Haley, who would even root it in their faith. They, you know, Mike Pence talked about him accepting Jesus Christ as, as his Lord and Savior. And then he, you know, 10 minutes, 10 seconds later, he's advocating for, you know, well, after viability, we should protect human life. Um, and I think it's a, it's a travesty because somebody who's holding to the Christian worldview should say, well, you know, even Jesus, when he entered the world, he was incarnated not at his birth, not at the moment uh, he left the womb, but at the moment he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb. So even from those earliest stages of being a human being, being a preborn person, uh, that's a valuable life and that should be protected. You know, I've had discussions with state legislators and asked them, okay, so what do you think? And, and many of them, the ones who are being honest and have a little bit more room, there are people who say, well, it begins at conception and we should ban it at 15 weeks or six weeks. And that just, it hurt. It not only makes me weep inside, it hurts my head. I cannot comprehend. I cannot get my head around it. We are saying that I'm making a political calculation here, and that if I support something that is consistent with my beliefs, I will suffer political harm, okay? Well, every two or four years, we spend somewhere between two and six months saying that that's exactly what I got elected to do. I got elected to put my principles first. I don't care. I will do the right thing. And we turn around and we say, oh, well, except here, except in this case. Well, look, I get it. I understand. I've worked in politics for 25 years. I've run over 200 camp, worked on two, over 200 campaigns. I have lobbied in 40 states and in Congress. I know that the political calculation is real. But Lizzie used the right terminology when she said it is not just. There are standards of justice. And if we are unwilling to allow that standard of justice to shape our political perception and the things that we will do and what we are willing to risk, there are always things that are not directly related to justice in which we are free to make decisions. We could do that next year. In fact, the vast majority of political, of things you have to decide as a legislator have that political element, and it is not necessarily wrong to make that calculation. But there are things that do touch justice, and that if we made that political calculation would be unjust right. yeah. at a core level. It's not enough just to say, well, if it has to do with any preborn baby, then it is a just or unjust decision. That is not necessarily true. That is not how God defines justice. But there is a immutable definition of justice. In fact, the word justice itself simply means in line with an external moral standard. That's what just means. That's why we say it's right or left justified when we're speaking about paragraphs. We're talking about being in line with an external standard. 
our English language, you know, and, and this is something I actually agree with the Marxists on. They, they posit that English itself is an imposition of Christian morality. Okay, you got me. I agree. <laughs> it is. So if you want to communicate coherently in any language, almost every language on earth is an imposition of Christian morality at some level. Um, now, that's not always true. There are cultures that have been un, unaffected by Christianity to this point. But the vast majority actually have been impacted by Christianity at one point or another. And because it is a coherent system, I, I submit the only coherent system, um, but you don't have to actually agree. There, are, It is a coherent system, and so people, and I know you do, Ben, I'm speaking to our listeners, um, right. <laughs> there are... This is how language works. You can't communicate without some kind of structure that this word means this every time we say it. And um, so that when I say it, you know what I mean. Um, that, that is an absolutely vital part of politics. And if we are not willing to acknowledge that there are some things we have to stand fast on, in fact, we all actually say that because even the politicians who wouldn't stand fast on anything have learned that when we stand fast on certain things, we get praise. We get plaudits, and we get political points, and so we're going to say that I will stand fast on this, um, and and that's what's going on right now. People are concerned that standing fast on abortion will mean Republicans lose, and that is the narrative that is being pushed. Fascinating thing about those kinds of narratives is that they are rarely as true as uh, people as, as the people pushing them say they are. Um, and I've been on the other side. I've been on the side of constitutional carry, for example, when I first started. It was insane. People would not support it. The NRA said, you're crazy. You just want criminals to carry guns, blah, blah, blah. Well, constitutional carry simply says that you shouldn't have to get a government permit in order to carry a firearm you already legally own. If you can legally own that firearm, uh, you should be able to carry it for self-defense. Um, and we intentionally, over 20 years, built a narrative that said, if you oppose this, you are not pro-gun, because it was true. There's a true narrative, and now there's this sense of inevitability. If you come from a conservative state, you go ask the legislators, what about constitutional care? You can go to states where it hasn't passed yet that are conservative and ask them, well, you're going to hear, well, I, that's a touchy subject, but look, it's going to happen sooner or later. That's the narrative now. Um, well, that's intentional. Well, the left is doing that to us right now. They're building the narrative that says if you actually support ending abortion post-Roe, well, you're going to get your backside handed to you politically. That's the narrative that they constructed in Ohio, and that's what's so frustrating about that entire, that entire setup. Um, now, look, no one sat behind, you know, all together in one room and decided that we're going to run a special election in August in order to change the Constitution on an esoteric question that's nearly impossible to explain uh, in the mediums, that, in the media, the, the media that are available to communicating with in, in communicating with voters. Um, which is what this the entire ballot question was about. We're going to change the threshold from 50% to 60%, and that some, has something to do with abortion. Um, well, of course, you're going to lose that fight. People vote no when they don't understand an issue. We talked about this on a previous show. But, of course, what's the left's answer? Oh, look, look at the numbers, look at the turnout. Obviously, people in Ohio, in this red state, support abortion. That's an absurd claim. Right. It's, it, it's, it's on the face of it absurd. Yeah. But they're making that claim. Right, right. Yeah, I've been, I've been, I'm only 23 years old, right? Turning 24 in a few months here. But so I've been around politics a lot for a lot less time than you have. But I remember in 2012, you know, I was 12, 13 years old when Obama won his second term. And it was, it wasn't as quite as good a victory as in 2008, but it was still a pretty decisive victory. And I remember distinctly, you know, all these media outlets were saying that 
you know, isn't, it is now impossible for Republicans to win the presidency. It can never happen again. And then four years later, you have Donald Trump winning right. Michigan, Wisconsin, <laughs> right? So, yeah. I mean, yeah, the world changes, you know, even the United States, you know, um, certainly changes even sometimes very fast. And I think the question for politicians is not how do we respond, you know, uh, to whatever the political pressures are, the popular pressures are, but, you know, how do I do the right thing before God even um, in, in passing certain laws and not passing other laws in, um, you know, being being a civil magistrate, executing justice um, on the authority of God. I'm thinking even about the Psalms and, and um, that say that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, right? Like that's that's the eternal standard. That's the objective standard. You know, you and I would say as Christians is, is the rule of God in the earth. You know, he's the creator and he's also the redeemer. He gets to decide how we live. Um, and even in the wisdom literature, uh, the idea of wisdom is the art and skill of godly living. It's that if you do certain wise things, if you save your money, if you work hard, um, if you care for your family, things will generally go well for you, right? There's exceptions to the rule. There's Job, right? He did everything right. And yet, you know, God cut him down or allowed him to be cut down for, for certain reasons. Uh, but as a general rule, when you do the right thing, um, you flourish and those around you flourish because that's the way that God made the world. He made the world in wisdom, as Proverbs 8 makes clear. So even a manifestation of that is is uh, civil magistrates in the United States, which is not Israel, it's not a chosen nation, but just recognizing God as creator and as the ultimate authority and as that plumb line um, of justice and, and uh, looking to his word and, and his wisdom and how, to, and how to rule. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's really fun to look at what happens. And even in the case of Job, let's, you know, if you zoom out and say, did, did Job throughout his life, the majority of his life, was it positive or was it negative? Did he suffer more or, or enjoy more? Well, the reality was everything was restored, and it specifically says better than it was before, right? right. That's specifically what the Bible tells us. And so I think the message of Job, it, it's not the exception. It, it, it's when you zoom in, there is going to be hardship, and that's because we get something out of hardship that we don't get anywhere else. And this is something that in our modern world, we have to do things like run marathons or um, go on extreme races, or there are all kinds of ways to put ourselves through suffering in a safe society where we voluntarily say, I will go do this. And we ask people, why would you run 100 miles to the mountains? Why would you ski uh, you know, backcountry up and down over with 7,000 feet of gain over 40 miles all night long? And you ask people and they say, well, because suffering with your friends is a bond that you can't get anywhere else. There are many right. reasons, but many people will point that out. And I think that's fascinating. How, what, what do you do with the problem of suffer, human suffering? Now, look, I'm not saying that it's all wonderful. I'm not saying that, that uh, we should be masochistic. But I am saying that when suffering does come, there is something there. There's something to it. And... When we look as a Christian, I look at the Bible and I say, God put himself through suffering. He voluntarily did that. He's the one being in the world that would never have to. And yet he decided that he was going to create a world. And one way or another, whatever your perspective is, if you're a Christian, whether you're Calvinistic or not, we look, you have to look at it and say, ultimately, it was up to God whether or not man was going to be as, as difficult as we are. And when you look at what God says about how how stressful, how distasteful, maybe stressful is the wrong word, but how distasteful human sinful behavior is to God, he does not enjoy it. He does not enjoy it even a little bit, and yet he chooses to put himself through that, and he chose to go to the point of sending his son to die, yeah. which we know that neither of them enjoyed. 
Why? Why would he do that? Well, we're not told exactly why, but you can observe and say, well, clearly God is getting, there is something here. And so when we go through suffering, we have to look at it and say, God is giving us something that we can't get anywhere else. That's what's going on. And so I think it is actually part of the big picture of wisdom ruling the earth and of, of being able to live in accordance with a just standard, and that when that leads to things that we don't like as much, which it always will, having children is great. Having children is also really horrible. It sucks sometimes a lot. We get my daughter out of bed last night, and she is covered almost head to toe in, well, not quite, but every part of her almost is covered in um, her own excrement because her diaper exploded while she was sleeping. Well, cleaning that up, I mean, it's not a huge thing. It's not horrible, but it's not very much fun to take a poop-covered child and you know, get them all cleaned up and, or have them throw up at night or have them get a terrible illness and eventually some sometimes perish when they are still very young. These are things, you know, there's a full range, and I'm not comparing one, range, one end of the range to the other. All I'm saying is that's a full range of everything from mildly unpleasant to very, very difficult and horrific. God specifically allows those things. There's no other way around it. He does allow them. And from my perspective, he is in charge of the entire process. That's what I believe the Bible teaches us. And there are things to be gained. There are things to be gained, and that applies to politics. It applies to the battle for um, the right to life. Why is it that we are at this time? Why is it that we face this level of injustice in a country where we thought we'd answered that question? We thought that we had taken care of that problem, right? Well, it's actually not true because human beings are going to continue being human beings. I believe that people in the 1830s and 40s and 50s and 60s specifically looked at this and said, wait a minute, there's a big group of us that we thought we dealt with the slavery question already. We thought we took care of this. We didn't do it properly in the Constitution, which is true. Um, and yet we did outlaw it, and we, we have been outlawing on the state level, but now we have to fight a war over it, and millions of us are going to have to die. Why? Well, I think that, that those same questions are now being asked by a lot of people in America over abortion. We're looking at it going, why is it that people like Mike Pence, who claim to be Christian, and yet there are so many different levels. I don't, you know, I'm not going to judge Pence's relationship with God, but we can look at his public acts and go, yeah, there's a lot of not Christian things going on here. There's a lot of, there are, there's a lot of dishonesty here. Why does that hurt so much? Why do we have to watch people who claim to be to be living in this world that, that was constructed by wisdom doing these kinds of evil things? Well, I don't know, but I do know that the opportunity to fight for liberty and freedom, to fight for the right to life and to actually do it, um, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you even see in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus became sin, like he took the burden of sin upon himself um, not that he had to, but because he wanted to. And then Hebrews 12 made clear as well, he despised the shame. Like you're saying, neither the father yes. nor the son enjoyed the process, right? It, right. it was hard. It was meaningfully hard um, to put the God-man through that. But yeah, he did it for our salvation and to win a people for himself. And um, even in even in Isaiah, like uh, God says, it is too light a thing for me to just save the Jews. I'm going to save the Gentiles too. And then he made a way for the Gentiles to be grafted into that into that one people of God. Um but yeah, so I, I know you and I both know uh, lawmakers and people like that who are willingly taking on burdens of going against the political system and, and because they know before God and, and before their conscience that 
you know, they, their states cannot allow babies to be murdered, right? It, there's not a certain class of newborn baby that should be protected and another class that shouldn't be, uh, but they're willingly taking their burden upon themselves to do that. And I think that's also what it means to be a man in a certain sense as well, is taking on burdens to protect and provide for those you love and, and those in your community. That element of being standing up and saying, I, I am not going to allow this to happen without protest. Yeah. Um, this is something that is core, it's vital. Um, you can look at different times. We've been talking about the American experience, but we could talk about people in Europe. Let's talk about the, the experience of people who were born in Germany right before the turn of the 20th century, right? And, these, and, and right up into people born in the, in the teens during World War I, right after World War I. Well, they ended up living through one of the absolute worst times to, to be a German, to be a European. Um, and they saw their country starting to do horrible things. And, and some of them, they didn't even know they were doing yet, but they could look at what Adolf Hitler was leading their nation into doing. And uh, men like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, men like uh, Klaus von Stauf uh, von, let's see, what was his name? Stauffenberg, Klaus von Stauffenberg. Um, they stood up, Hans von Dinani stood up and said, not, we, will, we will not bear the shame without fighting back. To the point yeah. to where some of them said, we are going to participate in plots to end Hitler's life. And there were, I believe, 22 different attempts, um, the most dramatic of which was the July 13th plot in which the, the movie Valkyrie was made about. Um, and so if you, know, if you want to watch it in popular culture, watch the movie Valkyrie. That is, you know, it, don't watch it with your kids until you've seen it and decided. <laughs> uh, but that is, that is a fantastic look at what it was like. And what do you do when you, when you live in a time when you see the people that you are responsible for, you're responsible for what your political leaders do, and they are doing terrible things? Well, you, you don't just let it quietly go by. You stand up and say, no, this is wrong. I will not silently bear the shame. I must act and do something. And look, in in Germany, we can we can debate was it was it moral for them to try to assassinate their own uh, political leader? That's a great discussion. Um, and so, I, I, obviously, I'm not saying that that's the only answer. But I have the deepest respect for the people who stood up and said, "Not on my watch." And if that means that I am executed for standing up and saying this is wrong, if that means that my children are ultimately taken by the state after I am killed, there are all kinds of, and there were, those things did happen, it's particularly touching to watch von Stauffenberg's oldest son, who was 12 or 13 when his father led the effort to take over, not just assassinate Hitler, but to take over the German government and then negotiate a peace with the Allies before they, they, his country was absolutely and utterly destroyed. Um, he was taken by the by the SS uh, by the um, Gestapo, and was indoctrinated and told his father was a traitor. And but of course, this is the end of the war. They only had a few months left, um, and they were wiped from the face. The Nazi Party was wiped from the face of the earth. Uh, the Stauffenberg family was rescued, um, and then he started learning what his father had done, how heroic his father was. And um, he is now in his 80s. I believe he is still alive, um, the son, and um, has spoken about his transition from being told. And, and I mean, what do you do when everyone in your life is telling you your father was a traitor and you're 13 um, to a few years later beginning to see just exactly how much of a hero your dad actually was? Um, that is uh, that's fantastic. It's, it's an unbelievable yeah. story. 
Um, and, and so the necessity of standing up and saying, no, I, there are certain things that it would be unjust to take any other position. Um, whether or not we're going to kill tiny babies, I think, is at the top of the list. Right. Yeah. That reminds me, uh, my grandmother is from Naples. So she lived uh, when she was a little girl through World War II. And her, her, her father, uh, adoptive father, my great-grandfather, uh, would go into the town square when, when Mussolini was rising to power. And he would, he would argue for democracy. He would say, you guys are insane if you think this, it's a good idea to put this guy in power. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some cool family stories I could tell maybe another time. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 but you remember those people from your past because they're worthy of emulation, right? And you, you always talk about your, your great, great, great grandfather who's, who signed the, uh, signed the declaration, declaration, excuse me, of independence and uh, the necessity of what are you going to do for, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to carry forth the American experiment and the cause of liberty in the earth. And I think those are the kind of people who, in, in this right to life fight, which is the most important one, but also other things like uh, gun rights and the right to self-defense, that's a question we should be asking is, you know, are you sitting on the couch or are you somehow working, um, you know, whether it's as a career or whether it's on the side uh, to, to say, hey, we're not going to murder babies. Hey, we're not going to let our guns be taken away. Um, and that's, that's a question all of us need to answer as Americans, especially at this hour. That's right. I couldn't agree more. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.